And if you've got your Bibles with you, you can, uh, well, we're mainly going to be in John chapter 1. So let's turn, you probably knew that. No surprise there. Let me pray real quick. Father God, we're opening your word now. So we ask for you to speak to us through it. Um, this is here for us. So much greatness as Christ is magnified in the witness of his friend, his cousin. And uh, we pray that you would help us to grasp the significance of all of it. It's, it's wonderful. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, you know, when the Apostle Paul started, he was on his second missionary journey and he made it to Greece and he was going back to Jerusalem to fulfill a vow he had made and he stopped briefly at the city of Ephesus and he had made new friends, Aquila and Priscilla, and they had traveled with him and he left them at Ephesus and he told the Ephesians there, he said, I will return to you again if God wills, which is always the right thing to say. So recognizing the strategic importance of Ephesus uh, for that part of the Roman Empire to evangelize it, Paul worked his way there on his third missionary journey and then he stayed there for several years which he didn't do very often, stay in one place, but it was such a strategic location, that's what he did. But when he arrived there the second time, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 19, you can actually look at that if you want to, I'm just going to tell you what happened, but he met some really interesting people, and they were, Luke calls them disciples, which means they were Christians, that's his normal word for Christians, but the more that Paul talked with them, something seemed a little off about them, and he asked them, he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This is Acts 19 verse 2. And they said, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul said, oh no, no, I don't know if he said that or not, but I just made that part up. But he asked them, he said, then into what, into what then were you baptized? So he's asking them on what basis or in whose name they were baptized. And their answer was into John's baptism. That's not the normal answer he would have expected. So that was a, a, a thing. That, so Paul tells them, he explains to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is Jesus. And then Luke tells us, when they had heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Now that's going to be significant in a minute. Even before Paul got back to Ephesus, remember he left his friends Aquila and Priscilla there, this couple. They had met, while they were in Ephesus, before Paul came back, a very powerful preacher of the gospel named Apollos, who shows up several times in the New Testament. So now we're in Acts chapter 18, that's where I'm talking about. Apollos was a very well-educated man from Alexandria in Egypt. Alexandria was the educational center of the Roman Empire. It was the greatest seat of learning in that part of the world, famous for its gigantic library, which barbarians later destroyed, but it had a large Jewish population, and Apollos was from there, from Egypt, and here they find him in Ephesus, and listen to what Luke says about him, this is Acts 18.25, it says, Apollos, he was mighty in the scriptures, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately 
the things concerning Jesus. That's good. Then he says, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So here's another guy in Ephesus who's following Christ, has all the right doctrines, preaching his heart out, bringing people to the Lord, and he didn't understand Christian baptism. He didn't know about it. He'd only heard about being baptized in John's name or John's baptism of repentance. So he knew Jesus, but as far as baptism goes, he only knew John the Baptist baptism. So that's pretty interesting that that would even happen. So, so there you are on the, the east coast of what we call Turkey today, like a 1,200-mile walk from Jerusalem to there where Ephesus is. And there's people there who had either been baptized by John the Baptist or who were baptized by disciples of John the Baptist in his baptism. So this is about A.D. 52 or so, and Paul is there and stopping by there. So we're talking about more than two decades after John was put to death by King Herod in the Holy Land. So there are still people decades later, far from the Holy Land, who were profoundly connected to the ministry of John the Baptist. And I have to tell you... Um, you cannot exaggerate the significance and the impact of John the Baptist on the ancient world at that time. And there you see a little glimpse of it right there. He had a lasting impact. He plays a significant role here in John's gospel, but we're still in the prologue where we've been studying here. So we're not up to the story yet, but he's going to show up a lot in chapter one later on here in John's gospel. And guess where John's gospel was written? Do you remember? I've mentioned it before. Ephesus. Yeah. Yeah. John, John the Apostle's disciples have told us, this is in part of church history, they wrote down that he wrote the Gospel of John in Ephesus. So there, it's interesting to me that these people in Ephesus were into John the Baptist's baptism and John includes this section about John the Baptist in the prologue. It's normal for him to tell the story of Jesus and mention John the Baptist because all the Gospels do that. John was so important. But to actually include him in the, the prologue of the gospel before he gets to the story. It's just really interesting. And I think that shows John the Baptist's importance even in John's day. Now John's writing this even way beyond what we were talking about when Paul was in Ephesus. Paul's long dead when John's writing his gospel. He's, he's writing in the 80s or 90s AD, the end of the first century. So it's interesting that he makes so much of him. So his significance is clearly seen, if you think about it, if you know the Bible, um, think about John the Baptist and his birth, all recorded in the Luke's gospel. Um, John was pretty special. There, there's nobody else like him. Peter wasn't like this, John, the apostle wasn't like this, none of the other New Testament characters, but not many people are born by means of a miracle, but John was. Not like Jesus' miracle, but his mother was barren, right? And she was long past childbearing. And this angel appears to his father and says, your wife's going to have a child and he's going to be this really important person. And that doesn't happen to very many people. Most people don't get that kind of a message, right? And a miracle. And not many people have an angel announce they're coming into the world either. John did. Not many people have that announcement by an angel in the holy place that a priest can only get, go into, you know, every now and then. Like, well, you know, he, John's dad was on this rotation basis to go into the holy place and there in the holy place, the angel's standing in there. 
and he tells him he's going to have this child. That doesn't happen to very many people. Not many people also have an angel choose their name. The angel told him what he's going to name him. John, John had that happen to him. Not many people are filled with the Holy Spirit while in their mother's womb. But that's what the Bible says was true of John the Baptist. Not many people are the fulfillment of ancient prophecy, but John was. No one else has the privilege in the Bible of preparing the way for Messiah's coming. That's unique to him. So we learn all these things about John the Baptist just in Luke chapter 1, just in the very first chapter of Luke's gospel. And I should say also, not many babies had a miracle happen on the day, their naming day, when the whole family came together and the community was gathered around and they gave him his official name. A miracle happened on that day too. I'll have you look that up on your own. But that happened to baby John. Didn't happen to very many other people. So it should not surprise us really that Luke says, and this is in Luke chapter 1 verse 65, later in that chapter, fear, this is after the miracle happened with John's name, being naming day. Fear came on all those living around them and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. So John as a baby was being talked about all through Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea. And that would have carried on over time. You know, people paying attention to that. Keep an eye on that kid. You know, Zacharias' kid, he's going to be special. We got to watch him. So he spent years, John did, preparing himself for the task that his father had been told was destined for him by an angel that this particular task he was going to be given. Let me back up for that task. This is Luke chapter 1 verse 15. I should have had you turn to Luke, huh? Luke chapter 1 verse 15. For he will be great. This is what the angel's telling him. In the sight of the Lord, he will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The Lord is coming personally and John is to prepare the way by turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. That's his job. By the way, you know that that's exactly how the Old Testament ends, right? The promise of that. The promise of that. Malachi. Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, the last words of Malachi's prophecy, the very last words, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Those are the last words of the Old Testament. And here's John who is to be given the spirit and power of Elijah to announce, to prepare the nation for the coming of the Messiah. How would you prepare for that if you were John? Just growing up, knowing that that's your job, your life's work. Well, he'd have to wait, but he didn't wait, just kind of waiting, playing video games, waiting for something to happen. <laughs> he didn't do that. His decision, I'm, I'm sure with the leading of the Holy Spirit, was to live away from civilization 
and he lived out in the wilderness and it talks about his clothes and he ate locusts and things like that and he was uh, separated himself from any distractions and uh, any temptations he grew up and he, he like was like a monk you know an ascetic life Jesus was the exact opposite Jesus was very engaged in the world but John was very withdrawn from the world in fact he may have been set apart by a vow if you have ever heard of a Nazarite vow it talks about it in Numbers chapter 6 in the Bible and men or women could make a special vow to the Lord and refrain from certain things for a period of time and just to dedicate themselves to the Lord there's a couple of people in the Old Testament that appear to have been Nazarites from birth one is Samson who broke all of his vows and the other one is Samuel, a very godly judge of Israel in the Bible. They were Nazarites. Nazir, that word just means to consecrate. So you're committing yourself to living a consecrated life to the Lord, a separated life to the Lord. So Nazirite, that's where we get that word. So, so that's in the law of Moses that people can do that. And John may have been, because what the Lord says about not drinking any alcohol, that was one, of the, that was one part of the Nazirite vow. Nothing, you could have nothing to do with anything from a grape. You couldn't eat grapes and you couldn't drink grape juice or anything that's more fermented than that. Um, that was part of the vow that you made. Grape, I'm a grape-free diet. I'm on a grape-free diet. That uh, was a Nazarite vow. Just remember that and you'll have it. So John may have, in obedience to the angel's words to his father, taken that vow and set himself apart to be mentally and spiritually prepared when it was time for him to engage in this great work, taking the role of Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. All the Gospels mention John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Messiah. So right around the year A.D. 28, God spoke to him, to John, and told him it was time to start that ministry, to start preaching the coming of the Messiah. And Luke, uh, in his gospel, makes sure that we have a time marker. In fact, Luke chapter 3 begins with a, a, an amazingly detailed account. He goes through all of these people, both political rulers and spiritual leaders, during their reign so you could take all of their times and put it together and come up with a date about when God spoke to him and started this whole thing there's a whole bunch of them in a row it's kind of made it very precise so John got the word from the Lord right around AD 28 and he quickly became the most well-known Jew in Israel people already had their eye on him but suddenly he went out and started preaching and proclaiming the coming of the Messiah and his message was pretty simple repent repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand it's right around the corner and you need to be ready he's coming Messiah is coming God is coming he was the first prophet in 400 years after Malachi God did not speak through a human being for 400 years no prophets no new revelation, no word from God until John the Baptist. That alone marks him as special. And as far as we know, John never went into a town or a city to preach. They came to him. Once he started preaching and people knew about it, because again, all the area of Judea, they were keeping their eye on this kid. Once he grew up and started preaching, they came to him. Luke uh, chapter 3 verse 15 says that many people... Um, well, I'm sorry, Mark's gospel says, let me read this first. All the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem 
And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So that's how they were getting ready for the Messiah, to confess their sins. So Luke 3.15 tells us this. Many people were, quote, wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. So some people were thinking, well, maybe this is the Messiah, right? Because he's such a great man and he's so unique and he's speaking the word of God for the first time in 400 years. So significant. He did that job faithfully. He's a man of lasting influence. He did that forerunner job, that Elijah job unto death, literally. And on top of all that we've said, Jesus said about John, truly I say to you, and when he says that, he's serious. He's always serious, I think, but he, extra emphasis. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So again, it's hard to exaggerate the importance of John the Baptist. Even outside the Bible, there are references to John. You may have heard of the writings of a Jew named Josephus, a first century Jew named Josephus. Have you ever heard that name? He was a Jewish commander in the Jewish revolt against Rome in AD 66, but he was captured and he flipped sides. He actually kind of joined the Roman side and was part of the camp of the Roman general there. And when the Roman general eventually destroyed Jerusalem, burned down the temple, did all this stuff, he went back to Rome with him as, as a friend and an acquaintance. And in Rome, Josephus wrote a history of the Jewish people to, to let the Romans know more about his people. And he also wrote a book about the Jewish war in great detail. We know everything, all the things that Jesus predicted where it's going to happen to Jerusalem decades before. So he lived it. And he has detailed accounts of the fall of Jerusalem to the Roman Empire. Great detail. And it's exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Only when you read Josephus, it's even more horrific because he was an eyewitness and new eyewitnesses. So amazing things happening there. And guess what? Josephus mentions Jesus and tells how he died under Pontius Pilate. Josephus mentions James, Jesus' brother, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he explains how he died, Josephus does. And there's one other person Josephus talks about that's in the New Testament, and that is, they're good, good guys are so smart, John the Baptist, that's right, he mentions John the Baptist too. And he says that he was righteous, and he also explains, as the Bible says, that he was put to death by King Herod. So, Josephus wrote in the 90s AD, you know, AD 90-something, which is about the time John is writing John's gospel. But just the fact that he mentions Jesus and James and John the Baptist tells you that John the Baptist was still a person of interest that late, as we've already seen where Paul was in Ephesus, but even that late. Because Josephus was born after the death of all three of those men, Jesus, James, and John. He, he was born like in 37 or something, so that was before his time. But the memory of those three men are, was still strong in the Jewish community. So he knew about them and he wrote about them. So he's a big help for us to know some of those things. So my point is John the Baptist was still remembered some 50 years after his death because of his influence. He was so important. I suspect that's why John the Apostle includes him not just in the gospel story but actually in the prologue to the gospel because he's setting up the story but he's going to do that with John. So now we're going to talk about John's gospel here.
He was a great man of his time, right? Highly regarded as a prophet and a righteous man. So what John says, John the Baptist says, here's John the Apostle, okay? I'm going to try to make that distinction each time. John the Apostle, John the Baptist, John the Apostle's talking about John the Baptist. He's going he's gonna to talk about um, the witness that he bore. So that's our kind of a key word for us today, the witness. He's the witness. So now let's look at John's prologue and let me read. I'm just going to read it as far as we've gotten already. I'm going to start at verse 1 and read it right through, okay? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. Verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 6. There came a man sent from God. Whose name was John. He came as a witness. To testify about the light. So that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. We'll stop right there. So we can see in verses 6 through 8. That John the Baptist's purpose on earth was to bear witness, to be a witness, right? It's a simple and direct description of his ministry. So John is adding witness to what John said, the Apostle John said in verse 4 and 5. In verse 4, the Apostle introduces, well, the Logos in verse 1, right? And then in the ver verse 4, he says that, that the, the word, the Logos, was God. And then in verse 4, he says he was the light of men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light, verse 5, shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overtake it, as we looked at last time. The perspective of the entire Bible is that the world is shrouded in moral and spiritual darkness. That is the biblical view of our world situation. It's not real hard to see that that's true. That's a pretty easy one. Darkness dominates the thinking of mankind and it dominates the things that people care about the most the things they love darkness is part of human nature so people worship the creation rather than the creator just doing that is a kind of deep darkness to worship what God has made and not the maker that is Spiritual death, the Bible calls it. So the Lagos, on the other hand, Jesus Christ, who was God and with God, is the source of life and light, he says. Then comes verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. He came to testify about the light. So this great man we've been talking about, John the Baptist, he bore witness to Jesus as the life and the light. So that's how he's serving as Elijah, the preparer of the way, preparing the way for the greatest light of all, the time when God would become a human being. I don't know if Malachi knew that's what was coming, but that's what's coming. God revealed himself to us as one of us on our level actually assuming true human nature and it's going to say that in verse 14 the word became flesh and that's what he's talking about there 
Jesus, who created all things, including our world, including us, he has all the wisdom we need to find our way out of darkness. Indeed, as we read here, he himself is the way out of darkness because he is the true light. He doesn't just have light. I've got some light I'd like to share with you. It's not that. He is light. So everything is bound up in him. He's the maker of all things and he's the redeemer of all things. And that's why God called and set apart John the Baptist to bear witness to that, to testify, to point people to Jesus Christ. Telling them to trust in him as a savior. Trusting in Christ as God and as savior is the only way out of darkness. The world is bound up in darkness and that trusting in him, our creator and redeemer is the way out of darkness. That's the message. This whole book, John's gospel carries that message. And here John the Baptist is testifying to Christ as the light. And later in chapter one, we will hear John's direct testimony. But now this morning, we've talked a lot about how great John the Baptist was. And the apostle reminds us though here that as great as John was, he says he was not the light. That's why you aren't baptized in John the Baptist's name. That's why that's a, a mistake to do that. Which Paul corrected later in Ephesus, right? John bore witness to the light. So the apostle wants to make sure that we see John as a great man, but still just a man and keep him in his place. In fact, when you compare the John chapter 1 verse 1 and then look at verses 6 through 8, it's really interesting to see what he says about the word and then what he says about John the Baptist. For example, so verse 1, for example, the word was, and we talked about that when we looked at that verse, he always was in the beginning. He didn't have a starting point. He, he just was, right? He's eternal. But verse 6, John came at a pointed time. He's a mortal man. He didn't exist and then he did exist, right? Verse 1, Christ is the logos, the word. Verse 6, John is the anthropos, a man, a mere man, a regular human being. There came a man. In the beginning was the word who was with God and was God. There came a man. Quite a distinction there if you think about it. Verse 6, John is sent from God. Verse 1, the word was God. Verse 4 and verse 9, we see that Christ is the light. And verse 7, John testifies about the light. But he's not the light. Verse 7 also, Christ is the one in whom you should place your trust. He wants you to believe in him. And in verse 7, John testifies, so that all might believe through him. So you're not to believe in John, but if you listen to his witness, through that, you can put your faith in Christ. That was his purpose. So he's not testifying to himself, he's testifying to Christ, and you can believe through him. So we never give too great of honors to any mortal man because nobody is the light. So as great as John was, um, even the best men are merely servants of, of the king. And John knew that, of course. He saw himself as a servant and nothing more. One of the remarkable things about John the Baptist with all this cool stuff that happened to him, you know, if all that happened to me when I was born, I might have an attitude. But John was a much better man than I am. His humility just stands out all through. He wasn't wimpy, but he was humble, a humble man. Never did he in any way promote himself, John the Baptist. 
People came to him. I, you, you just can't even imagine him with a PR ministry team, you know, working the crowds, setting them up, doing all this stuff. The Madison Avenue approach to Christianity, which is so common today in evangelical Christianity, he would, he, never, never, he would have had nothing to do with stuff like that. The evangelical church is so steeped in that, it's kind of horrifying, and, and the fruit of it has been rotten, you know, and I, I won't go into it, but I've seen it up close up close, that Madison Avenue approach to Christianity. And close enough to never go near it. <laughs> never go near it. But there's a reason John lived in the wilderness. Maybe because the money people wanted to use him. Who knows? There might have been PR people after him. Just stayed out there, you know, stayed away from the city. I think it's very hard to be famous and be promoted by professional admin with money on their minds. I think that's a really a hard thing to work through. And, and remain humble in Christ. That's not easy to do. I think that's very hard. Maybe it can be done, but not easily. But anyway, John always deflected attention away from himself, not toward himself, to the message. And the message is about Christ, primarily. Well, you know, somebody say, well, maybe John was just sort of a shy, gentle, soft-spoken, introverted sort of fellow. No, don't think that was him. Don't think that was him. Nothing wrong with being a shy, introverted fellow, but that wasn't John. He was not soft-spoken. He was not shy. In fact, Luke tells us the message he actually gave to crowds who came to see him. You brood of vipers! <laughs> who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Very inviting, warm, <laughs> shy. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's the sweet, gentle, shy message of John the Baptist. <laughs> He was a preacher of righteousness and he called for true faith, fruit-bearing faith. Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, he says. And yet, with all that power, he never promoted himself. In fact, he said he was unworthy to untie the laces on the Messiah's sandals, right? Remember that? That's how he described himself. Paul the Apostle had very similar perspective on that when the Corinthians, remember in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church was elevating their favorite preacher and they had these little groups, you know, well, I'm a Paul man, well, I'm an Apollos man, well, I'm a Peter man, remember that? And then there were the really godly ones that said, well, I follow Christ, <laughs> you guys don't do that. And Paul wrote, he said, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 5, um, what then is Apollos? And, and what is Paul? Servants. Through, who, through whom you believe. There's that word through again. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But God who causes the growth. That's the right perspective. Did you hear what Paul said about himself? And the others there? Through whom you believed. Through whom. That's exactly the word in John 1, 7 about John, so that all may believe through him. We've talked about the huge and lasting impact John had, but you know what? 
you can have a lasting impact too. You all can do that. Maybe not like him, but you can. What John did was to faithfully bear witness to Jesus so that people could find him. He bore witness to Christ as the unique son of God and as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how John bore witness. We can do that too. You can be a witness for Christ. Point people to Jesus. There's so many ways to be a witness and to point people to our perfect Savior. How do I do that? Let me give you a couple simple things. Mini class. First thing you should do is know your own testimony. Be able to share with somebody and, and I mean actually do this, actually sit down and craft it so that you could tell somebody your testimony in about two minutes. And if they're willing to listen, then you can give them the hour and a half version. But if you can give them the two minute version, that's excellent. That would be a really good thing to do. So have it down enough that you're not like struggling with it. You can just kind of tell people why you believe in Jesus and who he is in, in a couple of minutes. And know enough scripture to tell people who Jesus is, you know, from the Bible. What salvation is, how one is saved through trusting him as Lord and Savior, just like verses we read even in the service this morning. The Romans Road is a, a famous and very easy tool. Uh, I think I've mentioned that Laura did that not too long ago with a lady that was literally dying in the hospital. Laura went through the Romans Road with her and she died the next day. She got to hear the whole gospel before she passed away. Once you have down your testimony and you know some scriptures, key scriptures related to salvation, then you start praying for God to bring you opportunities to share. You probably have people in your life that you want to share with anyway. So you just pray for those opportunities to come up and ask God regularly to give you those opportunities to share. And he'll usually answer that prayer pretty quickly. Other than that, there's other ways to testify about Jesus and everybody's different and everybody has their own wonderful ways. And, but those two things you should sort of have down. Some of you are really good at turning a conversation to a spiritual subject. That's a good way to begin that whole thing. Some of you have little booklets or little tracts that you can hand out to people and you enjoy doing that. Some, that's one way to do it too. Some of you use social media really well and are very bold to put scripture on there and truths about Christ or really excellent articles or things like that. Some of you wear things to let people know that you follow Jesus and that also can spark a conversation. I have my famous sweatshirt that says the heart is an idol factory in Latin on there and, and people read that and it's got it in English at the bottom and they just start, they get really, that's caused a few conversations. The heart is an idol factory, what does that mean? You know, or things like that. I even have Greek, a, a sweatshirt I have that has Greek on the back of it and it's a verse from the Bible and say, what is that? What language is, is that Greek? What does it say? Then I get to tell him what it says. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. That's what it says on my back. Well, it's about Jesus. Oh, let's talk about that. Those kind of things. That's one way to do it. There's so many ways. If you're focused, I would say, if you're a very focused person and really love to do that, I'd say get involved in a specific ministry that allows you many opportunities to share. Laura and I's our first date was in a juvenile prison. So um, just for that purpose, we went there to, to share the gospel. And uh, we did that for years together. So there's all kinds of ways. If you're bold, go out on the highways and the byways and start preaching. Your dad isn't here this morning, but that's what he did. Mike, Mike McMillan is a... Is a Open air preacher. He's done that a number of times in his life. 
And if people come to hear you, then you can ask them very sweetly, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, that might not be the best way to approach it, but it worked with Israel because they knew better. But truly though, through you, just like through John or through Paul, people can find the Savior who loves them so much he gave his life for them. They can find him through your testimony. And that's what John's job is, being a witness for Jesus. You don't have to say, I saw the resurrection to be a witness, because John didn't see it. John's a pre-death and resurrection. John was dead by the time Jesus was put to death on the cross and resurrected from the dead. He pointed to what he knew. So you didn't see it, but you can say, well, this is why I believe it. This is why I think it's true. This is what it means to me. You're, it, it, and on top of all of that, your life should be representing what you're saying. And John's was. John was a righteous man. Truly a righteous man. I know it says here John was not the light. And he wasn't. He's not the light. But he is a light. Right? He was a righteous man. You know Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount he said let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So you're not the light, but if you are Christ, you have a light that you can show to people. Not in an arrogant way, not in a look at me way, but just the normal flow of your life, should, they should see it. You don't have to perform for anybody. It should be so much who you are, a righteous person, a godly person, a compassionate person, that they're going to see that light. So John was a light in that way, a reflection of the true light is a good way to see it. One preacher, and I'll just kind of close with this, but he compared John's light to the relationship of the, the moon to the sun, right? We had an incredible moon the other morning. Laura was like, get, get your camera. <laughs> this huge moon, it was just perfect, and the sun was hitting it just perfectly. But this preacher said, the moon is a dead world in space, a massive chunk of lifeless rock that's why we're going there. <laughs> Let's send a rocket ship to that. It has not a spark of fire, not a glimmer of light of its own. The work of the moon is to be a giant reflector in the sky, to pick up the light of the sun and relay the light to earth. The moon is not the light. It is poised in space to bear witness to the light. Out there beyond the darkness of the world and of the night is the sun. The sun is a vast orb of burning gas, a kind of nuclear furnace blazing away, pouring out a continual stream of light. The moon's function is only temporary, for the day is coming. The sun sheds its light directly on the earth, dispelling its darkness in a way the moon could not do. But such was John the Baptist. He was not that light but was sent to bear witness to the light. And so we are. That, that is our task. We are sent to bear witness to the light. Let's pray. Lord God, you sent your son as the light of the world. And only he can shine into men's hearts and awaken them from spiritual slumber to deliver them from darkness. But we can indeed tell those in darkness about him how else will they know? And we can let our little reflected light be seen in our faithfulness to him. So Lord, we pray that our lives 
would demonstrate that one can walk in the light and turn from darkness. And we thank you for this purpose that we, like John, can help people believe through our testimony. May we serve that purpose well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.